This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. Think of what you want to do next that will fulfill you, that will keep moving you forward, whether it's personally or professionally, that will be fun and challenging, but also, you know, to those in the audience I know listening today, impactful. And that's sort of the path, the route I take now, right? That you can't plan two or three steps ahead. It's just impossible. Who knows what will happen in the wider world and your personal life with a global pandemic. And then then the list goes on. Um, But we can think one step out and think what next is going to feed me my ambition. everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. I'm your co-host, Jamie Vinnick, founder and president of the Women's Network, and I'm thrilled to introduce our next guest, Dr. Marissa Porges. We filmed this episode the day after the Wall Street Journal published an article arguing that Dr. Jill Biden's doctoral degree in education did not make her a doctor. Why? Because she did not receive an MD which opened the floodgates to a much larger conversation. We discussed the implications of that statement together on this episode. After graduating from Harvard with a degree in geophysics, Dr. Porges began her career serving on active duty in the U.S. Navy and was promoted to a naval flight officer. She went on to earn a master's at the London School of Economics and a PhD from King's College London. She served as a counterterrorism policy advisor at the U.S. Department of Treasury and a senior policy advisor in cybersecurity at the National Economic Council in the Obama White House. She currently leads the prestigious all-girls private school, the Baldwin School, and is the author of What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. I'm so excited for you to hear from Dr. Porges and to learn from her incredibly inspiring story and wisdom. Make sure to connect with us on Instagram at redefiningambition and at thewomens.network and check out Dr. Porges' book. Enjoy the episode, everyone. It is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Dr. Porges. Thanks for coming on. Jamie, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I want to first read off some of your credentials. They are so impressive. You have achieved... more than most uh, have in their lifetime. You graduated from Harvard. You then went off to the London School of Economics, earned a master's and later a doctorate at King's College London. You served in the Navy. You served as a counterterrorism policy advisor in the U.S. State Department of the Treasury and Defense. You were a fellow at Harvard Kennedy School and at the Council on Foreign Relations. You traveled through the Middle East and Afghanistan, conducting research on counterterrorism. You previously served in the White House as a White House fellow, a senior advisor for cybersecurity technology. And now you currently serve as the head of school at the prestigious Baldwin School, an all-girls day school, serving approximately 600 students. Wow, that is a handful. (laughs) Um, Well, I've had the good fortune of, I call it, choose my own adventure, Um, but it's a good testament to uh, taking risk and trying new things and pushing yourself. And, you know, it's an adventure. It keeps it fun. So before we unpack your 
career and some of the lessons you've learned along the way and getting to your book, which I did not mention, you are someone who has a doctorate. I refer to you as Dr. Porges and something unfortunately happened. The Wall Street Journal made an enormous mistake by publishing and really exposing, bringing light to an, a huge issue. Women are often not taken seriously slash referred to by their credentials that they earn. They are not referred to as doctor or as their appropriate titles in the same numbers as which men are. Yes. It's a, you know, part of um, what I think so many of us experience every day, so much of what I wrote my book about and so much of what my own career has proven is there's still a lot of gender bias out there. Sometimes it's small things, sometimes it's big things. Um, this idea that women oftentimes more likely than not are not given um, the respect, um, given the benefit of the doubt, given the the honor of being called uh, by the title that they've earned, whether it be a doctorate because I earned a doctorate and being called doctor, whether it's um, a military title and they're, you know, whether they're a senior military officer or a lot of other um, moments like that. Whereas men by and large are. We were talking just before we started, Jamie, right, about that study that showed um, when, um, particularly when a man is introducing uh, a speaker at an event or at a conference or even just at a meeting, uh, if they are introducing a male speaker, another man introducing a man, 72% of the time, they are going to use whatever title that other gentleman has earned. But when it's a woman who's being introduced, less than 50% of the time, 49% of the time, she will be you know, given her due and called a doctor or colonel or gen you know, general or whatever it is. I mean, that's a bias, right? Because it sets the tone for the audience to say, huh, what has that woman accomplished? What has she achieved? What respect do I owe her? So I think it's incredibly important. And I appreciate you calling me, uh, you know, Dr. Porges to start, even though, as I said, I hope that we can have this be an informal conversation and use first names after that, um, because it's an important signal for all the women listening and girl, young girls too, to say, yeah, of course, women are at these levels and earning these titles and accolades, just like the men are. There is this deep-rooted issue. It extends far beyond the titles, and it gets to a lot of other unfortunate realities, which is that sexism, misogyny still exists, and that until we start having more conversation about that, no one's really going to fully unpack why that is, how to combat that, uh, and how to ensure that we can nurture in your own words, girls to and women to um, help them succeed. When this controversy, uh, and it's hard to even refer to it as a politicized controversy, because there were so many people who came to the defense of Dr. Biden, what were the thoughts that went through your mind? And would you mind sharing an experience that um, perhaps elicited some type of reaction to that controversy? Yeah. You know, my initial response is, wow, we, we haven't come as far as we thought, um, you know, because we, we think of there's more, you know, more women being elected, more women in senior positions. We see more women um, being held up as role models and that we are making gains and we are. And the system is changing. But I still say, think we have a long ways to go. 
whether it be be because the gender pay gap has stalled and still, you know, women are making 81 cents on the dollar compared to a man doing the same job, or whether it's this idea that um, a woman who owns a doctorate is less likely to be called doctor um, than a man. You know, for me, it brought to mind, um, you know, just a small moment, and yet it, it clearly stuck with me years later, but from when I was in the military. And as you mentioned, I was in the Navy um, and I flew. So I flew jets off carriers for the U.S. Navy. It had been my dream when I was a kid. So I went out and, and you know, and went for it. And I remember the moment when I realized that the equipment that we were wearing wasn't made for me. Um, the flight suit didn't quite fit right. And the emergency equipment, you know, I'm petite. You can't tell me, you can't tell because we're over Zoom right now, but I'm I'm quite petite, quite, let's say short. Um, and so the equipment in the jet and the ejection seat wasn't made for me. Um, it was made for the standard man who is taller, heavier, bigger build than I am. And I actually had to sign a waiver when we deployed on the carrier. And I remember, didn't tell my mother about it for years until years later, but I had to sign a waiver saying that if the ejection equipment um, didn't work properly, I would not sue the US military or the US government um, because it hadn't been built and tested for someone of my stature. Now, of course, you know, if there had been men outside the normal range of, of a man's build and body, he would have had to sign the same thing too. So this is more about size and stature than per se gender. But we also have, were you know, fully cognizant of the fact that most women were outside the normal range, right? I'm not, I wasn't as heavy, tall or lanky or built like a man was. And it always, it still strikes me to this day um, that there's these little moments that we as women have to face in, you know, so many of the places that we head um, professionally and personally. And so my, you know, what I'm trying to pass on now, the advice in my daily work as head of school, the advice in the book that I know we'll talk about, my book that just came out, it's really about how we're preparing ourselves and the next generation of um, young women and future leaders to face these daily biases, um, these hurdles that we all have to face on a regular basis and do our best the next time we're, we're facing them each day. You just had a great line that you dreamed when you were younger of um, flying jets. Did anyone while you were in those earlier stages of your life ever tell you, well, no, that's actually what men do. Girls and women don't fly jets. Did anyone uh, discourage you, whether it was implicit or explicit? How did that affect you? Yeah. Well, I had the good fortune of when I was young, um, going to an all-girls school for junior high and high school. I actually went to the school that I now lead, which is kind of crazy, but, and it was an environment that was set up to encourage women to break barriers and try new things. So when I was at that formative stage, when I was an early preteen or teenager, I had a community around me that said, of course you can go fly jets. Little did I know at the time, it was before they changed the rule allowing, you know, in the U.S. military women to fly com in combat. So I didn't even realize it. But that um, environment really gave me the impetus, the confidence and the boldness, the skills I needed to then go out in the real world, in a co-ed environment, in the military and face what was, you know, the occasional moments when, yeah, I can remember uh, when I was in training um, and a senior at the time more senior officer, it was just a lieutenant, but I was at that time still in training. So I was only a midshipman, you know, and when I said, oh, no, I, I want to fly, I want to go to flight school, then, you know, you can't do that. You're, you know, or if you do, it'll only be because they want to let a girl in. I literally said, that's not for you. And if it is, it's because they're going to have to let some girl in and maybe it'll be you. 
Um, and it's, and at the time I was still, I remember I was in college, I was undergrad. I didn't know what to say. And I can feel even years later, um, the, the, how my voice was taken away. And I literally didn't respond. I didn't know what to say in that moment. And I was quiet. Um, and I wish I defended myself or defended women everywhere, but um, obviously, uh, I just instead stuck to what I was doing and pursued a career. But nonetheless, I think those comments still come. And I think um, we need to really prepare ourselves for as women and, and for what we'll do in those moments. Thank you so much for sharing that. To a lot of people, a comment like that would usually discourage a lot of women, young women and girls from pursuing a career in this environment that is very male dominated. What effect did that have on you? And was that energy? What went through your your brain, your mind over that time that encouraged you to stay and to continue to go for it? Well, thank you for getting to the heart of one of the lessons of the book um, that you know recently came out this fall. Um, uh, it's called What Girls Need. And the ideas in the book are about lessons that I way, not all, all I had when I started out, but that in retrospect helped me um, make it through those moments and really still lean in to be my boldest self and follow like, you know, my dreams when it came to both my career and personal life. And one of the lessons that in retrospect, I realized was incredibly helpful was leaning into my competitive spirit. I grew up playing sports, being super competitive on the basketball court and the field hockey field. And there were moments when I really dug into that. And when in fact, other women helped me lean into that competitiveness. And I can remember one in particular when I was in flight school and I was super, you know, let's just say beat down by the system. I I was struggling. I wasn't doing as well. And I just felt like maybe the guys are right. Maybe this isn't for me. Um, And that was a narrative going on in my head. And there's one moment where a more senior woman who was was further ahead of me was a, a, you know, jet pilot, F-18 pilot, just this, you know, powerhouse of a woman that I was hoping to be like one day. And she turned to me and she said, put your game face on. And that was it. And it was this moment when I, it clicked for me that being competitive in a healthy way, not, you know, this idea that you can, you want to be your personal best. You want to show everyone what you've got. You're not always going to win. You're going to have moments when you lose. But if you lean into that competitive spirit, it can help get you through the day-to-day of having to face moments where people doubt you just because of your gender or where there's bigger roadblocks because of, you know, your background or your racial profile or these other moments that think our identity is keeping us back when it's not. And yet it's hard to combat that narrative without some sort of edge. And for me, it was um, really putting my game face on saying, nope, I got this. I'm going to be competitive. And I've since talked to other women along the way who've relied on the same lesson. Um, And I can remember, in fact, one dear friend from in the White House. And she too said that, you know, when she was up against it or when was she was sitting at the table in the West Wing and she was the only woman there, or, you know, she had come from a, you know, a finance background and had been in the corporate sector and was the only woman at the table off times. And she was super competitive. And she said, no, I want to win. I'm I'm here to win. And that helped her prove herself even when other people doubted her. Wow, that is an amazing lesson. At the time, what was your, you know, and, and you were someone who has 
I'm sure you would consider yourself to be a public servant. You have helped so many people and your contributions to society are incredible. Your research, your findings, your work. And you also refer to yourself as someone who's very competitive. What was the quote end game? Were you someone who was thinking about your career five, 10 years down the line? And what advice would you give to young girls who are also very competitive, very ambitious, who are focused, laser focused on their career, what lies ahead and their future? Yeah. And so, and this goes to the heart of your podcast, right? I mean, this is part of the reason why we're here for all ambitious women listening um, and to, I, I commend it, right? To lean into that. I used to try to plan years out. I used to think of it as five years, 10 years, where was I getting to until a mentor of mine, gosh, years ago now, really dissuaded me from doing that. And, you know, really just pointed out there's so much uncertainty in the world, right? I mean, look at us now in the midst of a pandemic, who thought this would be the life we're all facing, right? For this year and next year, and you can't plan for that. Instead, you know, think of what you want to do next that will fulfill you that will keep moving you forward, whether it's personally or professionally, that will be fun and challenging, but also, you know, to those in the audience, I know listening today, impactful. And that's sort of the path, the route I take now, right? That you can't plan two or three steps ahead. It's just impossible. Who knows what will happen in the wider world and your personal life with a global pandemic. And then then the list goes on. Um, But we can think one step out and think what next is going to feed me my ambitions, right? It will give you a new challenge. It will give you a new skill set. It will personally fulfill you. It will move you forward. And what I've found is, you know, you heard when you described my career, there's been like countless pivots. I've managed to leap between with a lot of work, a career on active duty, a career um, in senior levels of the federal government in count- handling counterterrorism, time in academia, traveling the world, and now time as an executive running a nonprofit and sort of you know running a school of, of girls age four to 18 years old. And what happened at each point was I just thought, well, what next f- will fulfill me, will challenge me, will give me new skills and move me forward? And then doors open that you could never even imagined and then you have, you know, adventures along the way. So it's a slightly different way. And I know it's a hard, particularly um, as someone who myself, when I was an undergrad, was thinking, oh, I got to plan 10, 15 years out and, and think at that level. And life takes you directions you could never imagine. So it's, it's good to prepare for that and just be flexible in how you think about your career along the way. Being flexible and also pivoting, and I want to get to pivoting, there are so many people, especially young girls, who think that they have to figure out what they want to do for the rest of their lives. And you're a great example that that is a myth that you can pivot at so many different points of your life throughout your career. After your active duty in the Navy, where did your career take you next? And I would love for you to talk more about your work serving in the White House, serving in counterterrorism departments. What were some of those experiences like in the pivot? Right. And so it's a fantastic topic, this idea of pivoting, particularly because um, the generation, Jamie, that you're part of and and that you represent with all your listeners um, will pivot 
will change jobs more often than any generation prior, right? You all are more likely to change jobs more often by the time you're 40 than your parents and grandparents change throughout their life. It's just a different world. The future of work is changing. People navigate that world much differently than ever before. So it's great to think about it in those terms and practice what flexible thinking and flexible career planning looks like. For me, I I sort of fell into it, right? I have to say that's not how I started out. Like you just mentioned, I thought I was on a trajectory that would be 10, 20 years of sort of a path. And then things came up and life happened. Um, You know, I, um, for a number of reasons, decided to, uh, and we can talk to this at at a different point, but sort of take a step back from flying um, and wanted to do something else. And I realized that one of the things I enjoyed most about my time in the military had been not just the flying and aviation part and the camaraderie that came with serving at the, you know, operationally in in uniform, um, but was the national security strategic problem solving. This idea of how we're positioning our country and the world to be safer for other people. Um, And so my next step was, okay, let's find a job doing that. And I pounded the pavement um, and thought, well, how about, you know, Washington, D.C., the Pentagon? And I did what so many listeners are probably doing right now, which was I talked to people, informational interviews, got my resume out there and found somebody who could use, you know, someone with my perspective who wanted someone who was smart and hungry and hardworking and wanted to solve problems for national security. And so I ended up working at the Pentagon and the Defense Department and later at the U.S. Treasury handling counterterrorism strategy. That, you know, soon opened to other doors. And before I knew it, I was traveling and doing research on these issues and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, in some ways, the pivots, I shouldn't say that I lucked into them, but it was hard work of creating opportunities by focusing on something that inspired me right? This idea of national security. Then it became the idea of, you know, traveling and research in other places. Then it became the idea of service and leadership. How do I return to that? And that's what brought me back to my current role, um, leading a community of women and teachers who are setting up the next generation for success. Wow. You interviewed former members of Al-Qaeda. You have traveled to very dangerous parts of the world talking to uh, people who were a part of a very dangerous organization, and terrorist group. You've also spoken to Syrian rebel fighters. What were the qualities that enabled you to feel prepared to talk to these groups, these people who are a part of these organizations? And uh, I'm sure listeners are curious, did you feel scared? Did you fear for your security? Um, so you're speaking about a point in my career where, um, did what we were just talking about, leaning into some crazy moments and seizing opportunities to travel throughout the Middle East, um, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, onto Afghanistan, Singapore, studying counterterrorism efforts, studying um, in particular why people become terrorists, why people join groups like Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And that's where I conducted those interviews you just spoke about. And the interesting thing is that, and I didn't realize it until later, but the thing that was most empowering in those moments was being a woman, was having a unique viewpoint on life and therefore communicating slightly differently, connecting with people across language barriers, cultural barriers, gender barriers. Most of um, those I was speaking with, um, including, as you mentioned, the Syrian rebel fighters, um, uh, you know, who were involved in the Syrian conflict were young men um, who had gotten involved in these these combat um, activities. And 
I really over time learned to lean into just sort of a different approach to interviews and talking with people, connecting with people that made it helpful for me to relate to people who's um, had such, you know, in some ways significant differences, but at the end of the day, there were commonalities, um, you know, love of family, sort of desire to do better for the next generation. Um, yes, incredible differences in terms of how we perceived um, the best way of going about those things. And clearly, you know, the idea of violence and all this other stuff, but this approach to communicating and empathizing with the other, um, which I do think is uh, something that I came to particularly as a woman differently than male research would have really helped and became sort of my, I want to say my trick of the trade. And it's something that I encourage everyone to think about who's listening, what unique skills you're bringing to the table, to, to your team as a woman, because of how you communicate, how you um, work and collaborate, how you develop teams. And this is a really unique advantage. I think that young women have um, this day and age particularly, and we should use it to our advantage. Wow. I completely agree with that. I can tell based off this interview or conversation, you are a very empathetic person and your communication style played a key role in some of the success you had in studying and communicating with these various uh, members of uh, former members of these organizations. What specifically did you learn about yourself mm -hmm. and the process of effectively communicating in conducting some of these interviews and finding yourself in situations that I'm sure your parents would have said, absolutely not, you are not flying to this, this part of the world and putting yourself in this situation. Yes. Well, it's funny because some of the stories I tell in the book are stories that my parents didn't even hear. My family didn't even hear until the book came out. So um, and it includes moments where I, you know, I did speak with the former senior recruiter for Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. We were at a cafe in downtown Sana'a in Yemen and talking about life and talking about religion. Um, and this is where the lesson I learned that really has helped me most. And it was uh, not an easy lesson for me to learn, but it was about how to be vulnerable. We talked about earlier, sort of, I'm the girl who leaned into being competitive, right? Was going to tough it out and sort of make it work. And yet, in retrospect, the times when I was able to communicate best, connect best with not just, you know, members of Al-Qaeda, but let's be, you know, a little more recent with my team, with the people I'm working with, with people I need to collaborate with or to inspire as a leader is the moments when I'm vulnerable, when I share something about myself, when I share about, in this moment, it was share something about my religion and what that means. Now in my current job, it's about sharing moments of motherhood, of what it's like to be a mother and an executive and how that doesn't always look so pretty every day, but it's you know, something we all go through, um, or many of us at least. Um, and so I think how we use moments of vulnerability to our advantage, right? This isn't about being vulnerable um, for the sake of it, right? Let's just be honest, the people, you know, for your listeners, everyone listening, you want to be leaders, you want to be empowered, you are ambitious. Um, and so it's about how you make your moments of vulnerability, like serve that right? Because it can, and it's not, not a malicious or nefarious way of being, but it's just thinking, well, you know, this, this moment, it's helpful to me and my team. It's helpful to share stories because it's how we connect as human beings and how we then do better for each other and our community. Um, and so I think it's useful to think about it in those ways and strategically 
use the tools we have, communication tools, empathetic tools, tools of vulnerability that as women really make us our most powerful. The pandemic has really exposed a lot of vulnerabilities that are continue to persist throughout society and have affected everyone in so many different ways, have affected women, have affected young girls. In And there have been a lot of, um, I'm sure you're aware of this, researchers who have come out and said that girls feel and are trained and conditioned to believe that they have to be perfect and that they have to play nice and that they have to get by and do the right thing and be risk averse. And what we've learned throughout the pandemic is that everyone is vulnerable and that it's okay to be vulnerable and to show vulnerability. What would you tell these young girls who are vulnerable, uh, who express vulnerability, that that is okay? And, And referring back to your book, that you should continue to be brave and bold and exert um, confidence mm-hmm. uh, because then you'll start to believe that. Yeah. And it's a, it, that what you just said is 10 lessons in one, Jamie. Um, and it's so important um, that we share that with young women um, and the next generation, this idea that risk-taking is good and risk-taking comes with failure right? That while women, you know, as you mentioned, research shows that women do by and large compared to men have more perfectionist tendencies, but that that often holds us back from being our boldest self. And that particularly in these moments when everyone is being forced to their limits and everyone is having moments of imperfection, we need to accept that to both be our risk-taking self that propels us to greatness and also lean in and be our boldest self. The two things really require embracing imperfection and embracing moments of failure. And I think the one added note that I'll mention, because I think it's super helpful to the conversation, is to think that you're not alone in doing it, right? The idea here is that we all have a team around us, a team of you know, friends and teammates or colleagues or your partner or your parents or your siblings, um, whoever it is that's on that short list of your phone, when you pick up your smartphone and you see who's on your speed dial, um, that's your team. And I think you know, perfection isn't just about, you know, or excuse me, embracing imperfection isn't about just yourself. Um, a narrative you're giving yourself. It's about figuring out the tools that you need to navigate those moments of failure. And for me, it's really having a handful of friends, colleagues that I've collected over the years. One I just spoke to earlier today and we were talking about, you know, this life returning to work um, right now in the midst of the pandemic. Um, And, you know, we crossed paths years ago in DC and then crossed paths again in Afghanistan and now have to stay in touch via, you know, the phone and FaceTime. Um, And yet, you know, we have those moments where we say, okay, you know, how can I pick you up now? Right. What do I need to do to pick you up? And she's one of those women I call when if I, the phone rings and it's me, she knows she picks up because it's a time that, you know, I need my team to say, all right, let's, let's rally the troops. Let's get together. Um, and I think that's a helpful thing for us all to remember, particularly when we go back to this idea of women needing to practice being imperfect. That, and part of the practice is building the tools, the resources, and, and the team around you um, to really lean into moments of imperfection 
um, and make sure that you can not just get through it, but um, be your boldest at the other side. So I think that's at least a part of the lesson I'll add to what you just said. Reflecting back on your experience working in the White House and your research conducted on counterterrorism, was there a particular moment that stands out to you in reflecting back on your experiences that tested and or tried your leadership skills and made you a better leader, a better communicator, a better person? Mm-hmm. So one that stands out, and there was so many of them, but I'll try, I'll pick one that stands out um, for us today because it speaks to that idea of um, working with a team, of collaborating, of this particular way that I learned I communicate with others. Um, and it was uh, not a great moment of leadership, but a great moment of teamwork and collaboration that happened in the throes of an emergency in my plane. Um, I was f- flying in the middle of the Pacific, um, had taken off and, you know, at uh, as the night was falling with my pilot and my fellow navigator, and we had an emergency midair, um, emergency mid-flight that uh, fundamentally, we were not very well prepared for. We were three of the most junior members of the squadron and candidly kind of didn't know exactly what we were doing in that moment. But uh, I'll cut to the chase. We figured it out. And in part, we figured it out because of the way myself and my fellow navigator in the jet, whose name and call sign was Kate. Um, so one of the other few women that I ever flew with and my roommate at the time on the ship, we worked through it together in a slightly different way than emergency manual would have said we should have. Um, and we figured it out together. We communicated together. And, you know, uh, an hour and a half later, we made it safely back to the carrier and landed. And while harrowing, I look back on it now and it really cemented for me this idea that as a a woman and as a female leader, um, how I work with other people, how I collaborate um, is um, one of my superpowers, I call it, right? And one of what I argue are the superpowers for women and men everywhere, but particularly women because we social science shows are nurtured to relate differently, communicate differently, work in teams and with friends from a young age differently. And so it has made me a better leader to realize that over time. And it has made me better at making decisions because I rely on my team in different ways and made me a better executive now because I think about things with other people in mind slightly differently. Um, And so it's just one story that stands out that is, uh, you know, a fun one because it involves jets off carriers and emergencies midair and and landing safely a few hours later. Um, But that speaks to what we were just talking about through the lens of leadership and in particular, uh, skills that um, women should develop over time. I want to get to your book that came out. You touched on nurturing, and I love the thesis of the book. Your book, What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women, is a fascinating read. I encourage all the listeners to pick up a copy. What inspired you to write the book? Was there a particular moment that made you realize, wow, there's a need to really get out this information and continue inspiring and pushing women into thinking big, into thinking bold. So I was inspired by the girls at my school to pull together my stories and pull together the research that I'd found over um, the years of, of running leadership classes and share it with a more broad audience. And so it was really uh, conversations that I had with high schoolers at my current school. I teach a leadership seminar for the seniors just before they're headed off to college. And 
Over time, I realized that I was sharing both research and social science research about gender differences in leadership and what it means and how we both lead and manage and these concepts, um, and also lessons that I learned in my time in the military, my time at the White House, my time you know, working in, in the Middle East and elsewhere. And I began to see how the combination of the two um, was relevant, not just for the girls at my school, of course, but for a much wider audience, because they're life lessons that even now I'm still learning, right? Because it's not about how we prepare girls for college or grad school or their first jobs. It's about how we prepare each other for college till now for me and beyond, right? Because I think these are leadership and life lessons that we should continue to learn throughout. So I was definitely inspired by the girls at my school. Here at Baldwin, we have, uh, you know, as you said, almost 600 girls from age pre-K all the way through grade 12, who are focused not just on college, but the world around them. And that's, I know, again, your listeners as well are thinking, what lessons do we need to prepare for that wider world? So that's what the hope is of the book. You have a great philosophy on this topic where you can have a 4.0, achieve great success on paper, be very studious when it comes to your academics, and still not have the proper tools or resources to succeed in the professional world. How can we better prepare girls, young women who are in college or just entering the workforce or who have just broken into their careers to live a life of fulfillment and success to prepare to succeed? Having conversations like this candid conversations about what the real world will demand of us as leaders and in particular as women, because we will be facing different hurdles than our male peers. And it's good to be honest about what that looks like and what the challenges may come as you navigate personal life and family life or periods of being a young mother or periods of job transition. So part of it is the candid conversations and part of it is developing specific skills that will give us a competitive advantage, right? This idea of leaning into certain unique ways we communicate so that our voice is just not strong, but effective, right? That when we earn a seat at the table, we want to make sure we're our most effective self in that moment. Um, this idea that women need to like lean into lessons about negotiation because social science research shows we don't negotiate as effectively as men or this idea that we need to be more as adaptable as possible. There are certain things we can do to grow those core skills we'll need wherever we head next. Um, and so I think it's both the candid conversation about what the real world may look like and also then thinking about those particular skills. And we've been talking about them today. Um, it's also what my book goes into. Each chapter talks about a skill that we should be nurturing in ourselves throughout life. What are some of those skills? Yeah, well, we talked about a few already, right? This idea of how to empower your voice and embolden your voice to be most effective. So using your voice is one. How to be competitive in, in a healthy way and lean into that competitive spirit. Something that not all women have nurtured or girls have nurtured from a young age. Um, this idea of unique ways we collaborate and problem solve. This is really something that comes innately to many women and girls, but that we can nurture to make it our advantage. And then we talked about empathizing and adapting, also things that we can develop as core skills that we can then leverage to maximum effect, both at work and at home. In leading an all-girls school, it's a very different experience to attend a <laughs> class with girls in the room versus a co-ed environment. What are some of the skills and even the lessons and the experiences that help 
girls who are taught in these environments versus all-encompassing co-ed environments? How can we apply some of the skills learned, whether that be teamwork, to the real world? Since environments in, in the professional world are not going to be typically all-girls environments. There's a, a number of them that are both research-based and reflect, uh, you know, the daily experience of being at a girl's school or a girl's camp or sort of in a girl's, all-girls environment at some moment. I think the first one that jumps to mind, though, is the importance of role models. Um, and so for the young women at my school, they look around and know that every leadership role is filled by a girl. Every person who goes to the front of the room to solve a math problem is a girl. Everyone who's solving an engineering or computer science or running the student newspaper or running for a school president is a young woman. And so there's never a thought in their minds that, well, maybe this is just for the boys. Maybe I shouldn't be playing sports or doing my best in a STEM field because I'm a girl. And research shows that women respond differently to same gender role models than men, in large part because wherever you look and whatever book you open, there is more men fulfilling a lot of the roles we're talking about than women. It's why history books over time have been, there's been work made to close that gap and show historical figures who are women because for so many years, most of the examples in books were men. So, and this is something that can be replicated in other places when we're conscious about it. This idea of that we need to hold female role models up for each other and they're everywhere. Sometimes it takes a little effort to shine a light on them, right? So the next time we see a female athlete, whether they're winning or losing, but playing on a championship level, we should be shining a light on her on social media, tweeting about it, right? This idea that, you know, Serena Williams may have lost, but wasn't it amazing to see a young mother who had recently given birth, like, you know, as a finalist in the U.S. Open and Let's talk about that. And we do that here at the school very consciously, but it's something that I know the Women's Network does that right now. I and mean, this is part of what we're doing, shining light on female leaders everywhere to be role models for each other and developing this team of support. And that's the other thing I'll speak to, this idea that here at an all-girls environment, we're really conscious of nurturing our girls' ability and desire and capacity for working together with each other. As sisters, we call it in the school world, but you know, in, in the working world, it can look the same. I have found that most of the places I've worked until now have been male-dominated. But I've always found my work sisters, I call them, right? That woman I just told you I spoke to earlier on the phone, we had each other's back. You know, and we were there for each other in good times and bad. And I think it's not the only thing that will help you, but it definitely is a reservoir of support. That's why you have the Women's Network, right? And that's why you have other personal or professional avenues where you can have your work sisters, your, you know, sports sisters, your sister sisters by your side when you need them. A lot of people would look at someone who's had a career like yours and say, wow, she had a great education. She's very ambitious. She's worked in the White House. She was in active duty in the Navy. She's now leading an all-girls school. She's had and served in many prestigious roles. She's an author. What would you tell those people who compare themselves to their beginnings to others' middles, compare their success to other people and who are concerned about whether they feel they're equipped to succeed? I think it's important to remember that for every success story you hear, there are so many moments of failure that are part of the success, that lead to the success. And so whether it's my own personal story that includes moments of failure at every step along the way, because that's life, right? And some of the failures were 
big F, right? Capital failure, F failure. And some of them were just the little F moments that we all have every day because again, that's life. And I think it's really important for us to remember that particularly when we go back to that earlier idea of perfectionism and this push that a lot of women have um, and this feeling that if they're not perfect, it's not working. Um, and that's not true. Right. And so for me, you know, to share with you in this group, part of my own personal story is about that moment when I realized that despite my dream from when I was a little kid of flying for the Navy, at some point I realized it wasn't for me. And more than in fact, it wasn't for me. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because it turns out that I got airsick almost every time I went in the plane that I got violently ill to the point of nausea, throwing up headaches um, when I did combat maneuvers in the jet. And I spent years trying to convince myself that this was my dream. I had to do it because if not, I would be a failure. And it wasn't until a mentor, a senior officer pulled me aside one day and said, hey, chopper, that was my call sign. You know, you don't have to do this. You won't be a failure if you try something else. And no one had ever said to me, called me out on it, said, listen, it's okay to admit you're not going to be good at this and you're not going to do this well, that this isn't going to be your success story. And it also took me years to get over it, even after I opted out of flying, even after I followed a different career path. I mean, it wasn't until years later when I ended up back on the carrier, many years later, I was flown out to the Arabian Sea onto the carrier I used to fly with, and I ran into people I served with. And I was there to provide advice on some of the operations that were going on in Afghanistan and Yemen. And it wasn't until that point where I said, hey, I can still contribute. I can still serve. I can still make a difference to the world that I had dreamed of contributing to, but I'm not going to fly because I can't because it wasn't going to work for me. That whole success story, right, is fraught with moments of failure. And I think it's hard, particularly with social media and all these other things buzzing around us that we think it has to look a certain way. But I guarantee every listener that it is not the way it looks and you are doing great and you're doing fine and you just got to keep it going. That was incredible advice. What are you most proud of in reflecting on your career, your achievements and failures? I am most proud of moments like this, I think, of the impact that I hope I'm able to have on other women, on the next generation, on the people who I hope will go on and make difference upon difference upon difference in a positive way to the wider world. I think it's what has counted most for me. It's what I find most enjoyable and fun. And it's where we see lasting differences being made, I think, in our daily work. Love that. Love that. What are you most hopeful for, for our generation, Gen Z girls, young women just entering their workforce, starting their careers? What do you hope to see and what positive change are you excited that this generation will contribute? It's been so rewarding to see that the next generation of young women are more and more focused on their impact on the world around them. Right, and this idea that we all see how connected we all are and that this idea of that your legacy isn't about necessarily what you're doing in your own small environment, but how it's impacting others and your community, whether that's locally or nationally or internationally, gives me hope for all of us, whether it's that we're going to be able to solve climate change or economic inequality or educational inequality or all these things that are weighing on our minds on a regular basis. I'm hopeful because I see how you all are really conscious of not just how you're getting ahead yourselves, but then what it means for others. And that looks different to different people, right? For those out there who are, you know, pursuing, um, you know, paths in the private sector, you'll have your moment too. 
right? To see how you're supporting your employees and how you're sort of giving to others around you on your teams. That's as important and, and really impactful. If you could leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice, what would that be? Build a team around you and rely on them. I think groups like this, the Women's Network are one example, but we all have ways that feel most comfortable for ourselves. Teammates, classmates, family members, roommates, check in with them, be there when they call, and they will surely be there when you call. And I think it is an incredibly high impact way and something we all need to be our boldest self. Love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on this podcast. Your words are going to move a lot of people listening. Thank you for having me, Jamie. And I look forward um, to hearing from your listeners. Please pick up the book, What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. It is for all ages. Um, There's still lessons that we should all be learning. Um, it's available on Amazon or any online bookstore that where you pick up your books. And I look forward to hearing from listeners as to which stories and ideas and advice you think resonate most as you're navigating this next step in your personal and professional lives. Absolutely. And we will link it on our Instagram. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.